you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of Genesis. First book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. I'm not sure if you've taken in much of the Olympics at your house, but we as a family have enjoyed watching them. Uh, it's amazing to see these men and women who have trained for years, sometimes it seems like for their entire lives, um, for this, this one goal, for their dream of competing in the Olympic Games and possibly bringing home a, a gold or a silver or a bronze medal. And what's equally amazing to me is how quickly everything can come crashing down. Um, you know, if, if you're in a diving competition and you forget to point your toes, it might mean that you don't win a medal. Or if you are in gymnastics and you kind of wobble a little bit or, or take a step, well, that could mean that, you know, you, you miss your chance, you are disqualified. Or if you full start in swimming, you jump in before they tell you to, that's it, it's over. You've trained for who knows how long, and now that's, that's it. That was your Olympic dream. Um, and so there's, there's this standard. What's the standard? The standard is perfection. No, no mistakes. If you slip or fall or trip or crash, it's, it's all over. But, you know, no pressure. I mean, just enjoy it. It's all about the Olympics and competing. In the midst of all this, there's all these officials and judges, right? And, and the greatest judges, though, and the greatest critics are probably the athletes themselves. They, they hold themselves to this extremely high standard, which is why someone can win a silver medal. They can be considered the second greatest person, the second greatest athlete in their sport, and they are still dejected and disappointed because they messed up. Athletes can be their own worst critics, and I think so too are we just in life. Uh, as far as I know, none of us competed in any Olympic Games during this past week, but we all competed kind of in the game of life, and we all uh, messed up a little bit. We all made some mistakes. Maybe it was just some small mistakes. Maybe it was something at work. You know, you you made a mistake of some some kind at work and it and it had there were consequences to it. Or maybe it was a, a home project, something that was supposed to be really, really simple and you turned it into kind of a fiasco because of a mistake, because you slipped up in a certain place. Well maybe not just in those areas, but in our walk of faith, don't we sometimes take missteps? Maybe we had an argument with our spouse, or we were lazy when we should have been productive. We were weak when we should have been strong. We were fearful when we should have been courageous. We yelled at our children. We gossiped about our friends. We quenched the spirit. We gave in to temptation. We tripped. We slipped. We fell. We crashed. And we don't need any judges holding up scorecards to tell us how well we did. We all are our own worst critics. We know the ways that we have slipped up, the ways that we have failed, the way that we, we just have not kept that standard of perfection. We want to, our desire is, is to continuously, constantly walk in unwavering faith and trust in God. But all of us admit that we did not do that this week, that we all failed in different ways. And so for failures like you and like me, the Old Testament narratives are extremely encouraging. And specifically, the story of Abraham is extremely encouraging because Abram messed up. He tripped and he fell and he did it often and he did it big sometimes. Uh, Abram, who is eventually going to be called the father of our faith, Abram was often faithless. He doubted. He sinned. He trusted his own instincts more than he trusted God. We're going to see that this morning in Genesis chapter 12. And the encouragement I think that we're going to see is that in the midst of our faithfulness, 
and our faithlessness, God is always working for our good and his glory. In the midst of our faithfulness and our faithfulness, God is always working for our good and his glory. Nothing we do can thwart the plans of God. If we are faithless, Paul says, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You remember last week we began our journey in Genesis 11. We met Terah and his family, and we began to uncover their role in the the larger picture, the larger narrative of, of God's grand creation. We saw how God has created all things, Genesis 1 through 11. We see him creating all things, including Adam and Eve, and then we see sin and evil and cursing break into this wonderful picture. The fall shows up, the flood the Tower of Babel. Yet there was always this this seed of blessing. There was blessing that was coming down through. It came from Adam, and it went went through Seth. And then one of Seth's descendants, Noah, there's this this blessing going on. And then to Shem, and then we meet the line of Terah. You remember we saw that in Genesis chapter 11, where hope starts to spring, where the line of Terah is, is mentioned. Chaos was increasing and evil seemed to be triumphing over blessing. But when all hope was lost, God spoke to Abram. Remember Abram, he's the unlikely 70-year-old worshiper of the moon God who was far from the land of Canaan and whose wife was barren. This is who God chooses to be the father of his new nation. I drew the illustration, another Olympic one, saying that choosing Abram was as unlikely as a country sending a 70-year-old to the Olympics And Jonathan sent me a link this week to an article about a 71-year-old Japanese Olympian uh, who is competing in this year's Olympics. So I guess I was proven wrong. But maybe maybe the fact that his participation is is newsworthy kind of proves my point. Uh, The point is that it's it's unlikely. It doesn't make sense um, that God chooses unlikely people, unlikely heroes. And when he does it, it serves to magnify the greatness of who he is. Remember, Genesis and the whole Bible is, there are other characters in it, but the main character is God. The main person that we're learning about is is who God is. He is the center of every story. And so we find, right here in chapter 12, we're going to read verses 1 through through 3 to start off, and we find out who God is in the midst of this. Read these verses. We read them last week, but they're so important. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verses 1 through 3, first off, we see God's call and his covenant. God's call and covenant. God initiates a covenant, a promise with Abram. And it's a, it's a covenant that promises Abram a land of his own, a multitude of descendants, and the hope of being blessed and of being a blessing. As we've taught our kids about the Abrahamic covenant, as you would call it, we've, we've said the Abrahamic covenant comes down to this, that Abram was told you're going to have the land of Canaan, you're going to have a whole lot of kids, and everyone will be blessed. All families of the earth will be blessed in you. It's a threefold promise that includes a land, a people, and the promise of, of blessing. Um, a man named Graham Goldsworthy wrote a book called Gospel and Kingdom that I've been trying to, to read, and he gives this broad scope of, of the entire Bible, and he, he says it comes down to this a picture of, of the kingdom, 
of, of God's kingdom, the place where God is, is ruling. He is the king, and his people are under his sovereign and, and loving rule. He says that this theme that flows throughout is, is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And it's something that we see all throughout Scripture. You, you see it in Eden. It's God's people. Who are God's people? Adam and Eve. In God's place. They're in the Garden of Eden. That's, that's the place that he has ordained for them. Under God's rule, they are, they are there in his, his loving care in the Garden of Eden. And we see it even here in the promise made to Abram. He says, we see God's people. God's people are Abram and his descendants in God's place. What's the place that he has set out for them? The land of Canaan. And under God's rule, he says, if you would follow what I do, you will be blessed. And it's something that continues throughout all of, all of Scripture, this picture of the kingdom, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Here in the beginning parts with, with men like Abram, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then even you could say Moses and Joshua. The, 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 the kingdom is established. God is establishing how he is going to work. He's setting the foundations for the kingdom. Later on with David and Solomon, you see that the, the kingdom is foreshadowed. What's the kingdom going to look like when it fully comes? It's going to look like, like the kingdom under David where, there, where things were going so well. Then Jesus comes, and what does Jesus say? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we see with the prophets and, and different literature that the, the kingdom is coming. There's a consummation of the kingdom. The kingdom will fully and finally be here one day. We could say so much more about this. and I have an extra copy of that book if you would like it, if you'd like to learn more about that. Uh, but it's, just, it's a broad concept. But the point is that this idea of kingdom, of God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, the theme is flowing, and it starts here with Abram as God establishes who his people are and how he will function. So God's call and his covenant with Abram is that he will give them a land. He will bless Abram with descendants, and he will bless all the families of the earth through him. Of course, the greatest fulfillment of that promise is the person of Jesus, that all the nations of the earth are blessed through Abram, through his descendant, through his seed, Jesus. But this establishes that God is going to bless his chosen people. They're going to be his people in his place under his rule. That's what he's establishing here. Now, what is Abram's response? We're going to see Abram's response of faith and worship here in verses 4 through 10. His response, Abram's response of faith and worship. Read 4 through, uh, 4 through 9 with me, excuse me. It says, so Abram, in response to what God says, Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So Abram hears this promise, and he believes. He believes what God says. His faith is rooted in, in who God is, and we see that he believes. How? Because he acts. He moves. So he proves his faith by, call, his faith by calling up U-Haul. He says, I, I need the biggest truck you got because I'm leaving. And if you do that, U-Haul is going to say, well, is this a round trip or is it just kind of, you know, you taking it to a destination? And Abram, Abram says, 
I'm not coming back. I'm taking everything with me. In fact, you might as well just sell me the truck because I'm, I'm leaving and I'm taking it all. And so he packs everything up. He was a, a nomad, and so this was fairly common to a certain extent, but he packs everything up from this land that, that he knew. Sarai, his faithful wife, is, is by his side. She believes probably about as much as he does. She might be a, a little confused, doesn't really know exactly what's going on, but she's going to walk with her husband through this. She's going to follow him. And then we see Lot, his nephew. Lot joins the caravan as well. Lot's a guy whose father has died. It could be that Abram took Lot under his wing, and Abram was like a father figure to Lot. And so when Abram said, I heard the voice of God, he told me to go to Canaan. He told me to go to a land. And Lot said, well, I'll go with you, Abram, because I don't have anything else. His grandfather had died. Terah had died there in the land. And so Lot through his, through, joined up with, with Abram and said, let's go. So they took everything that they had. And it says also that they took all, that they, all the people that they had acquired in Haran. It could be that these were, were servants or slaves of Abram that he was taking along with him. But, you know, it, it could also be that they're proselytes, that these are people who had, had joined up with Abram. They had heard what Abram said, and they believed him. And they said, we believe what, that you heard the voice of God, and we want to come with you. And already we see the covenant is extending. It's not just Abram's family. It's extending to other people that they're coming with him, they're coming to the land. That's the nature of God's promises. They're not something that we keep to ourselves. They're something that we tell other people about. And other people are blessed by them. And they, they join this, this journey with Abram. So everyone joins with him. They attach themselves to Abram. And in doing so, they attach themselves to God. And so they set out from the land of Canaan, old and young, slave and free, men and women, believers, and some maybe doubters who just were along for the ride. And they set out and they leave everything that they own to go to a place that they didn't know to follow Abram. And Abram, of course, is following God. You can almost see him, right, coming up over the hill, kicking up a big cloud of dust, all of their animals and everything that they own, and they're, they're traveling down south from Haran, heading towards the land of Canaan, this massive group of people. And I imagine if I were Abram, at least, there, there were moments where I would, I would kind of turn around and say, what am I doing? Where, where are we going? And is this the right thing to do? All these people are now following me. I mean, this wasn't some youthful adventure. You know, it wasn't like Abram was 17 years old and he decided that by himself he was going to go hitchhike across the West and try to find himself. You know, I mean, a lot of people are coming with Abram. They're attaching themselves to Abram. There's some some risk not only involved for him but also for all these people that have that have come along with him. Those that are near and dear to him. You know, last week we talked about how sometimes faith calls us to leave everything that we know. It calls us to, to leave the people that we know and the land that we know. And that's true. When Jesus calls us, he says, you need to find your confidence in me alone. We don't have any confidence in anything but, but following him. Our trust is in him alone. But when we take steps of faith like that, people follow us. People come along with us. Our families join us. That's a scary thing. Sometimes we're called to lead people that those that we love to leave their homes too, to follow us. It's a difficult thing. Sometimes we're called to lead them into places that we don't fully see yet. They're called to minister with us to people that maybe aren't very lovely. We bring people into our homes. And it's not necessarily someone that you would normally bring into your house, and your family is affected by that. God calls us sometimes even to move, to move overseas, to go to a place that's hostile to you and to the gospel. And your family comes along with you. 
God calls us to move to a neighborhood that's in need. He calls you away from a job into a, a job that that's, has a lower salary, but you feel like you're, you're doing more for the kingdom in it. You're called to take steps of faith, and you don't know what's going to happen, and your family is, is coming along with you, and you're trusting God, you're trusting His promises, but it's difficult because it's not just you. There's other people that are affected by this, and I think that that probably weighed heavy on Abram. His wife was there, and then his nephew was there, and then all these other folks that were traveling with him were there, and he's responsible for it. We see early on, though, this, this caravan, it, it shows up in, in Shechem. We see that here in... Uh, in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem at the, of, at the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So he ends up at this oak, this tree. It could have been an oak tree. Some translations say it's a terebinth tree. Um, it probably marked a place of pagan worship. It probably marked a place of, of pagan teaching, of what, teaching about false gods. That's what Morah means. It means teaching. So this oak of teaching. And that's why that next line is there. Um, they set out to go to, the, it says, uh, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. This, at, at, um, at Shechem, Abram comes face to face with the reality that God has called him into this land, but there are people in this land that are not calling on the name of God. That there is opposition already in the land. It's a place where his faith is going to be met with opposition. It's a place where the people of the land are not worshiping the God that Abram is worshiping. So not only does he have people along with him, but he also... Has, has this threat that shows up. To follow in faith, to follow God, to believe the promises of God, to leave everything and follow after Him, to bring everyone along with us, it doesn't mean that all obstacles are now gone, that, that we're not going to face any, any opposition. Because God's called us, well, this is God's land, and so nothing bad is going to happen, because this is what God has called me to do, and so it's going to just be smooth sailing, because this is what God has called me to do. And Abram right away lands in Shechem, and he sees pagan altars, he sees this place where pagan teaching is happening, he sees people that are calling, not on the name of the one true and living God, but on other false gods. That's the reality for us. I think sometimes we think that we can leave and things will be better, right? That, that if I could just go somewhere else, then, then I'll be able to serve God more. Or if I can just get out of this place, then my problems won't follow me. I can go to this church, or to this location, or to this house, and, and everything will be better. If I could just go somewhere else, then there won't be any opposition. Abraham soon finds out that just because this is where God called him to doesn't mean that he says, it's going to be really easy now and you won't have to fight for anything. It's easy to get duped into that, isn't it? Realize that that what just because God has called us somewhere doesn't mean that he's eliminated all obstacles and it's always going to be easy. But we also see that in this place of opposition, at, at the perfect time, what does God do? Look at verse 6. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. All that is background. And then verse 7 says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Is that new information to Abram? No, God's already told him that. He just needs to be reminded of it. Because again, in, the, in Shechem, he's come face to face with the opposition that against him is against him. And he's, he's got this family with him, and it's weighing heavy on him. And God shows up at the perfect moment and says, Abram, I am with you. I've given you this land. I will give it to your offspring. You will have a child. This is your land. I have given it to you. In the midst of opposition, God encourages Abram's heart. This is what God does for us in the midst of opposition. He doesn't say, okay, I'm going to wipe it all out. He says, no, 
I am with you. What I have told you is true. I will continue to be with you, and I will walk through this trial, whatever's in front of you, with you. His promises are true, and whoever and whatever comes against us, his plan of redemption, his purposes to redeem the world will be fulfilled. And at the perfect time, he reminds us of these things. He's given us his, his word, and, and in the moments when we forget, when we see opposition, and that's what scares us, he comes in and he says, I'm, I'm with you. I, I will walk this journey with you. I've told you my promises, and my promises are true. So with this renewed faith, what's Abram's response? He builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He worships. He builds an altar in the land. He, In some sense, he stakes a claim. He says, this is God's land. I'm building this here. This is the place where God's name is going to be glorified. He, he moves on, it says. Um, he moves further south to the hill country east of Bethel, between Bethel and Ai. And what's he do there? He builds an altar. And verse 8 says that he called upon the name of the Lord. Abram builds another altar a little bit further south. And he calls on the name of the Lord. Better yet, he, it's a, he proclaims or even he preaches the name of the Lord. There's Abram in the middle of Canaan, in, in the land overrun run with Canaanites and people who are worshiping false gods. And he builds an altar and says, this is God's land. Let me tell you, let me proclaim who he is. I'm going to proclaim his character and, and his ways to, to those that are in this land. And he preaches to this land. And he says, this is who God is. God has said that he is going to make Abram's name Great, And Abram says, if you're going to make my name great, the only way that's going to happen is if I would lift your name up. And so he responds, and he makes God's name great in the midst of the land. This is a beautiful picture of what walking in faith looks like. Here in verses 1 through 9, God speaks. God proclaims his promises to us, and we respond in faith and in worship. God speaks to us. He tells us that he is he's going to bless us, that he is good to us. And so we follow him. And when opposition appears... He encourages us. He says, no, this I am with you. My promises are true. And we respond and we proclaim his name. We worship. We say who he is. So in the Olympic event of walking in faith, we are awaiting the judges' scores for Abram. And we know he did pretty good, right? I mean, this is a great example of walking in faith. And so the judges give Abram a perfect 10. He is a man of faith. He gets the gold medal in the walking in faith event. Good job, Abram. And then all of a sudden, there's a famine in the land. A severe famine. Read with me verses 10 through 20. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? 
Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. So famine hits, and Abram looks around at his wife and his, his nephew and all these people that are with him, and he realizes he's got to do something. So they head south, further in the land, they head through the Negev, they head out of the promised land, and into the land of Egypt. It's usually not good when you go down to Egypt. It's, it's hard to know, was this, was this the right move? Is this what Abram should have done? We, we can't really know for sure. That's, that's one of the difficulties as we read through Old Testament narrative. Realize that just because it's there doesn't mean it's right. Part of what the story does is it just conveys what happened. This is just telling us what happened. And so we are called on to understand, what, well, was this the right thing to do? We have to understand, did, did Moses want us to think that this was a good idea? It could be that, that Abram just moved to Egypt because that's what nomads like Abram did. This is his life experience. This is his street smarts, or we might say his desert smarts. They kicked in, and he said, let's head to Egypt. And Egypt didn't need the rains as much because they had the Nile River, and so it was more fertile. They, they didn't suffer as much in droughts. We see that with, with Joseph at the end of Genesis. Remember, everyone heads down to Egypt because uh, of the famine. So we could give Abram the benefit of the doubt. We could say that his move to Egypt was, you know, it was, it was the right move. It's what he needed to do. It says that he was going to sojourn there. He wasn't planning on staying in Egypt. He was just going to go there until the famine was over. But then in verse 11, just as he's about to enter Egypt, Abram speaks. This is the first time that Abram speaks in the book of Genesis. These are his first words. Up to this point, we have seen no dialogue from Abram. It's only been God talking. And what's the first thing he says? He looks at his wife and he says, Sarai, this is wife of my youth, love of my life, you are beautiful. It's a good comment, compliment, isn't it? He looks at his wife and he says, Sarah, you are beautiful. Now, Sarah, I want you to lie. <laughs> that part wasn't so good, right? It wasn't simply a compliment, though, on her outward appearance. I mean, Sarah's a little bit older now, right? But it, the, the beauty that he's talking about is, is part of her whole, her whole character, her intellect. She was beautiful probably outwardly, but her character was strong. And it was it was strong enough that it made her desirable to others. Desirable enough that Abram as her husband would appear appeared as some sort of opposition to uh, someone in a higher authority who would like to take her as his wife. And they may have killed him to get him out of the way. And Abram got worried. The closer they got to Egypt, the more scared he got. And he said, i got to do something about this. I'm heading into Egypt and something bad's going to happen to me. And so again, his desert smarts are kicking in. He knew that the Egyptians would desire Sarai, and so he comes up with a plan. He says, Sarah, I want you to say that you are my sister. Then the thought is that Abram wouldn't be viewed as a threat. I think some people say that it would actually give him some sort of negotiating power, that he would be able to talk to the people in the land and he wouldn't be viewed as a threat, but as someone to reason with, to talk to. We often assume that maybe this is the first time that Abram's done this, but it could be some, something that, that he often did. He's a nomad, he's traveling around, and this was some sort of strategy that he had, that he tried it before, and it, and it worked, you know. We just tell the leaders that, that Sarai is my sister, and then we get what we want, and then we just kind of leave. 
you know, when fear arose in Abram, he kind of went back to maybe his old ways, his old patterns of how he did things. What happens when fear arises within us? When when fear shows up, it reveals what we truly believe. Are we going to fall back on on our worldly wisdom? Are we going to try to take things into our own hands? Or are we going to trust God? Are we going to trust what he's told us to do? Specifically here, we could ask when when fear arises, when stress comes in, are we going to choose to be deceptive? Are we going to choose to lie to get out of situations? Are we going to tell the truth, trusting that, that God is in control, that he will deal with the consequences? There was a popular show on when I was a kid. It was called Growing Pains. Does anyone know the, the show Growing Pains? It starred Kirk Cameron, who is actually now an apologist for the Christian faith, a pretty good one. But my dad always called Growing Pains the liar show because he said that every every plot was the same. It revolved around Kirk Cameron's character, Michael Seaver, uh, getting into a situation where he had the choice where he could either lie or tell the truth, and he always chose to lie. And whenever he lied, there were consequences, and eventually, in a matter of about you know 30 minutes, uh, everything would be figured out. His parents would say, Mike, if you would have told the truth, none of these terrible things would have happened. And he says, oh, yeah. But Mike never seemed to learn the lesson, probably because then the show would have not continued. Um, but it would seem that Mike's, Mike's natural reaction in situations was, when, when opposition comes, when something gets stressful, my reaction is, well, i got to lie, because that's the only way to get out of this situation. His hope, his, his faith was in his ability to deceive. Abram is the same way. He, he's not trusting God here. We can say that. I know it's hard to read sometimes the Old Testament. We, we think that the, the patriarchs did everything right. This is not right. Abram messed up here. He deceived. He lied. Now, we can see later on that it's it's true in part that, that Sarai was his sister. We'll look at that later because this isn't the only time that Abram lies about Sarai being uh, his sister. But he lies. He, he deceives. He's relying on himself. He's relying on his instincts. He's relying on his smarts rather than on God. He's being faithless. He's trying to help God out. He's trying to do evil so that good can come. Again, what about us? When the pressure comes... When, when we're in a situation where we've got two options before us, are we going to trust God or are we going to try to figure this out on our own? What, what do we do? Do we trust our instincts or do we trust God? You know, and as always happens, when we trust ourselves rather than we trust God, Abram's plan, his worldly wisdom backfires. We could probably assume he didn't expect Pharaoh to, to take his wife that uh, they travel into the land, though, and word travels fast. They they hear about Sarai, and, and word travels all the way to Pharaoh, and suddenly one day Sarai is gone, and she's been taken into Pharaoh's harem. This woman, who is supposed to be the mother of the promised seed, is now in the, the harem of a pagan ruler in the midst of Egypt. You know, Abram may have been nervous about what, his step of faith, what, what impact that might have on his family. 